We're delighted to be joined here on 106.9 Tune FM by Professor Thomas Fudge, who is a member of the St. Mary's community and uh, an historian here at UNE. How are you this morning? Very well, Jake. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I'd, I'd just like you to start off by explaining the situation for us from your own perspective. Right. In April, I'm led to believe that the Anglican diocese became aware of a married gay couple who were involved in some leadership activities at St. Mary's. I had no knowledge of any of that. Apparently, and this is contested, the dean of the cathedral held a meeting with a number of other people associated with St. Peter's Cathedral as well as St. Mary's, which is really an extension of the cathedral here in Armadale. And the meeting was private. I didn't know it took place. I was not part of it, didn't need to be part of it. What happened after that has been disputed. Apparently, the dean said, and he should be asked about this, that there was a pastoral matter that he wanted to address. And as the incumbent, this was well within his rights to raise concerns. What happened after that is a member of St. Mary's approached the two gentlemen in question. She believes she was asked to do that. The dean denies that he'd asked anybody to do anything. Now, what's been reported in the media and indeed what's been reported through, shall we say, hearsay, is that the dean said in order for these men to continue with their involvement with the church, they need to separate. Now, they're married in accordance with the Marriage Act. They need to change their lifestyle, and they need to receive instruction on a proper biblical lifestyle. Now, that's what was reported. I have twice heard the dean say publicly that he did not say these things nor did he authorize anyone to do it, and I can only say what I've just said. What happened is that the two men chose to leave St. Mary's rather than creating a bit of a ruckus. Now, where I became aware of events was on May the 23rd, when the dean canceled the service on Sunday morning at St. Mary's and held a congregational meeting. He read a prepared statement in which he explained his point of view. He called upon a number of people who were at the meeting in April to either corroborate or correct his statements. Following that meeting, on the same day, there was another meeting which I was asked to chair of the Congregation of St. Mary's, and we asked that none of the clerics be present, so they all left. And in that meeting, there was a free and open discussion, and the overwhelming majority of the congregation declined to support the dean's point of view. There were, as I recall, about 33 members present, and all but about two of those individuals said they didn't think what was happening should happen, and they voiced their opposition to it. St. Mary's then asked for a subsequent meeting with the dean and the bishop, and that was granted. And that occurred in the parish hall on the 7th of June, and there were three agenda items. The dean spoke, essentially repeating his position. I was asked by St. Mary's if I would present their point of view or our point of view, and then the dean, I'm sorry, the bishop, then spoke 
uh, in response. There was, again, uh, a free and open discussion around the issues, and that was that. Now, subsequent to that, St. Mary's congregation didn't believe that the dean and the bishop had really responded to their points during the 7th of June meeting, and so a formal response was put together and sent to the dean and the bishop. Shortly after that, perhaps two weeks later, because the entire management committee at St. Mary's had resigned, a group of six people were ratified by the congregation to act in an unofficial way as a point of contact between the congregation and diocesan leadership, between the congregation and the two men in question, and, if necessary, as a point of contact between the congregation and outsiders, shall we say the media or non-church people who might learn of this. Well, by the end of June, an online petition was launched, <clears throat> which has attracted about 14,000 signatures to date, asking for the church leadership to reconsider its position and to reinstate the two men into the positions they had previously. The bishop invited me to a private meeting, which I consented to, where we discussed the response that had been submitted by St. Mary's. Uh, somewhere along mid-June, a list of concerns were written up and sent to the bishop. And then, more recently, the media, probably because of the petition, have learned of the story. There's been a variety of news coverages in newspapers and on radio. And I've heard that television want to get involved, save for the uh, problem with COVID and so on. So it becomes an ongoing concern. The last thing that happened is a week ago today, all of the bishops in Australia in the Anglican Church were apprised of the situation and given a summary of events. Now, there are five archbishops and 18 bishops, so they were all made aware of what happened. The bishop contacted me the day after and asked for a subsequent meeting, which we had on Monday of this week. He was not happy with this and expressed himself that he didn't think this was helpful. He pointed out what he believed to be misrepresentations in the letter. On behalf of the congregation, I attempted to address those concerns and to answer the questions that he had raised. The meeting was friendly, as both of my meetings with the bishop have been. We spent quite a bit of time talking about irreconcilable theological differences. Uh, quite clearly, a good percentage of the St. Mary's congregation do not hold the same views of, say, Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture and theological position that the dean and the bishop do. And so the dean and the bishop are discussing the concerns that have been raised, and I think everyone is hoping for some kind of satisfactory resolution to what has become an ongoing controversy. 
Certainly. Uh, you mentioned that you had uh, that there had been contact with the other bishops and archbishops uh, in Australia. Has there been any response, and uh, what has that been like? There have been responses. <clears throat> Approximately six of the bishops responded. Uh, some of them were very supportive of the concerns raised by St. Mary's. They were all very respectful. I'd say one of them was a little bit dismissive, but not offensive. And look, the, the letter was sent out as not an invitation for them to get involved because there are protocols in the Anglican Church that either forbid or discourage bishops from getting involved in the business of other dioceses. And so there was support. Uh, I think the reason the letter was sent is because the issues are not just about two men in a small church in a small town. They are significant issues that will come to bear in other places. They are concerns that I think all Christians should be aware of and should be prepared to enter into dialogue around. Absolutely. In terms of those protocols you've mentioned around Anglican leadership and um, uh, other bishops getting involved in other dioceses, within this diocese, is there a protocol that suggests that such a dismissal on these grounds would either be allowed but questionable, or have they actually breached protocol by dismissing this man from his position or these men? I think the dean is the one best to answer that because he will say he did not dismiss anyone. Now what I can tell you from not my knowledge of the ordinance, as it's called, is that the incumbent, who is the dean of St. Peter's Cathedral, has the authority to appoint an organist or a music director in a church, which one of these gentlemen had that function. And he also, the dean also as incumbent, has the right to dismiss or to terminate. So he does have that authority. He says, as I understand, that at no time did he ever appoint this man as organist or music director, and therefore, since he didn't appoint him, he couldn't dismiss him, and indeed, he did not cause the man to be dismissed either directly or indirectly. Okay, so there's a little bit of, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely a little bit of uh, semantics, and um, I'd certainly like to talk to the dean about that. Um, another question on that, in your opinion, and from what you've heard from other members of the congregation, was this just a removal from a position of leadership, or do these men feel like they've been pressured to leave the congregation as a whole? Okay, that's a really good question, and I think it's a crucial point. I don't believe that either the dean or the bishop wanted these men to leave the church. In fact, I feel very confident speaking on behalf of the dean, particularly in saying that he would like for these two men to remain in the church as regular attenders. And why? Because the dean feels, and I think the bishop would support him 100%, that if these two men remain in the church and consent to allowing themselves to receive biblical instruction from the leaders 
of the cathedral and the diocese that they might be persuaded to a point of understanding that their lifestyle, i.e. a homosexual lifestyle, is contrary to Scripture, contrary to the will of God, and therefore they might repent and be converted to a proper biblical lifestyle. I think I can say that with considerable assurance. I believe I can also say, but again, it's the diocesan leadership who should respond that these two men cannot continue in the leadership roles that they had. One was on a committee and the other was the organist and music director, whether that was an official title or not, he was performing that function, that they cannot perform those roles, whether indefinitely or until such time as the biblical instruction is concluded is up in the air. So they're welcome to be at church. They're encouraged to come, but to take non-leadership roles. Um, obviously, this has been a bit of a hot-button issue in the church and, and outside the church over the last few years since we've had the, um, the change in, in marriage laws and uh, even before that. Um, how should churches, in, from your perspective as a, an historian and a Christian yourself, be dealing with these sorts of issues if they continue to hold to uh, their, I guess, their belief that homosexuality is contrary to Scripture? How should they continue to uh, deal with these issues going f forward, acknowledging that they are um, living alongside this being allowed in secular law now? That's another good question, <clears throat> and I do believe, and I have urged this on the bishop, there needs to be some intentional and serious dialogue around questions not just of the one you've raised, but of an even more fundamental one. And if I can start with the fundamental one, the issue, frankly, is not homosexuality or same-sex marriage. Now, homosexuality is increasingly accepted as a legitimate lifestyle here in Australia and in other parts of the world. And the Marriage Act has been amended, and the majority of Australians voted in favor of this particular amendment. So you're right to say that the church, now I digress, that parts of the church, indeed only parts of the Anglican church, support a view that puts the church in conflict with law. So if I could just make one more comment, I said that it's not sexuality that's the real issue. The underlying issue is how one reads the Bible. Okay, the nature of biblical authority and the method of its interpretation is at issue because you have bishops, if we just talk about Anglican bishops in Australia, some of whom have very different approaches to the authority of the Bible and how it's understood. Now the bishop here, Bishop Chiswell, is evangelical, he's conservative, and he reads the Bible in a way that's quite different from other of his colleagues in the House of Bishops. Now, to come back to your question, 
how does the church function when clearly on some points it is at variance with culture? I'll give you an answer that won't satisfy some of my colleagues. And when I say my colleagues, I mean not just academic colleagues, but colleagues at St. Mary's. And we've had a lot of discussions. We're talking about discrimination. Uh, there is the Anti-Discrimination Act, 1977. Articles 56 C and D would appear to give religious bodies some leeway. Now, I suspect this, these are going to be legal discussions going forward. If not rooted in the situation right here in Armadale, this will be, as it were, fodder for lawyers who are going to want to discuss religious freedom, the length and the breadth of that. Is Christianity discriminatory in general? Of course it is. I mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. That's a pretty exclusive statement. Now, I would want to look at that in its context, because a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, meaning you can make Scripture or any other text say anything you want. So we should take a scholarly, reasonable approach to ancient literature, which is the Bible. But... If you want to join the Australian Armed Forces, you will have to dress a certain way. You will have to conduct yourself in terms of your appearance. If you show up uh, for drill wearing something other than what you're supposed to, you're going to be in trouble. Does the church have the right as an institution which some would argue historically is not subject to law? required to change its teachings to satisfy law. Now, sports is a big thing in this country. Let's suppose you or I were members of the rugby team. But we decide we don't want to wear the uniform when we show up for the match. I'll bet the coach or the manager will have something to say. Now, my point in raising these analogies is not to evade the point, but to say that universities, we have a code of conduct. Uh, the military, sports, organizations have codes of, conduct, codes of conduct. They have dress codes. They have behavioral, moral, ethical requirements. So should the church be forced to align with society if it requires breaching historic understandings and principles. Now, for me, that's a big question. I, and I think many of my colleagues at St. Mary's, are perfectly happy for the bishop and the dean to read Scripture the way they do, to interpret the Bible as they do, to preach the sermons that they believe are good, right, and proper. But there is resistance to church authority which demands that everyone find alignment with those positions or seek a church home elsewhere. And if I could just make one other comment, Jake. I am aware that in other provinces of the Anglican Church that are more progressive and more liberal, 
there are conservative Christians, conservative Anglicans, who feel oppressed by the more liberal, progressive standards and positions assumed by those priests and bishops. Now, what would I do in an ideal world? I would try to create a culture of understanding and toleration. Now, so maybe you and I wouldn't go to the same church together because you're conservative and you read the Bible plainly and literally, and let's say I'm more liberal and I think, yes, that's what it says, but what does it mean? Now, we're both Christians, we're both Anglicans, and we agree to disagree on certain matters. I would like to see, and I have encouraged the bishop to consider, could there be some dialogue wherein both parties here in Armadale might find some middle ground. After all, historic Anglicanism has been all about the middle way from its inception. So could we find middle ground that doesn't require either side to compromise its principles and convictions? I think it would be worth having that effort. Whether it's successful or not, we will never know unless we have it. A very interesting point that you raised about whether the church has uh, the right to enforce its own uh, code of conduct and its own principles. And I'd like to use that to segue into my last question, which is about the Religious Discrimination Act, with, which the uh, federal government is trying to push through to the next election. Um, it will remove some discrimination protections from certain groups, which does include the LGBTQ plus community. Um, do you feel that that is a step that protects the church's right to practice in this way, or do you feel that that is a dangerous step that opens us up to uh, discrimination? Well, another very good and thoughtful question indeed. I think if that legislation was passed, it would allow churches and religious bodies and presumably other groups to have legal scope <clears throat> for discrimination. I mean, we don't like the word discrimination, any of us, but let's call it what it is. It's discrimination. Is it a good thing? <clears throat> I don't know. I'm a bit agnostic about that. I do think to some extent, and it's the clause to some extent that requires more thinking on my part and more discussion with the church, to some extent, I think the church should have protection, but only to some extent. Um, what that extent is, I don't know. I don't think that the church should be subject to the impulses of popular culture because you don't discover truth, Jake, by voting. And we don't discover truth, and I'm talking now about religious truth, by going to court. And I think the possibility of litigation or court proceedings in a case like this would be tragic for almost everybody involved. But where I would draw the line and say the church does not have the right to discriminate and to act contrary to the law is when the church has refused to enter dialogue to see what might be created short of becoming overtly discriminatory. But if you're like the dean and the bishop here in town, 
I think these men are individuals of integrity. I think they're men of honor. I believe that the dean and the bishop are people of integrity who are endeavoring to act in concert with the vows that they took when they became clerics. They're not homophobes. I don't believe that. I don't believe that they are hateful or overtly discriminatory. I think they're wanting to be faithful to their faith, to the practice of their religion, and they see it as their duty to call out breaches in conduct and belief that violate their interpretation of the Bible. And I would like for all of the people concerned in this particular controversy to get together, to have respectful, open dialogue, be willing to hear the other side, even if we've made up our minds, is it not possible we could be wrong? And I said this in the general parish meeting early last month. I turned to the dean and I said, quoting Oliver Cromwell, think it possible you may be mistaken. And I asked the bishop the same thing, and then I asked St. Mary's that. And I think if we approach controversial topics like this in a spirit of humility, a willingness to learn, a commitment to the teaching and ethics of Jesus, which is about love and forgiveness and acceptance and mercy and grace, God knows we all need all of those things in our lives. Should we deny it? to somebody else. Very powerful way to finish. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to, to hear your take on these matters and uh, I wish you all the best going forward. Thanks, Jake. That was Professor Thomas Fudge, a member of the St. Mary's Congregation here in Armadale. We did contact the Diocese of Armadale for comment and they did not respond, although we invite further comment from them in the future if they wish to respond to this interview. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Up next, we have Leaving on a Jet Plane by John Denver.